Welcome again to another episode of Out of the Gray, the podcast where we discuss all things radiation therapy and radiation oncology with the brightest minds in the space. And today, I am so excited to have a special guest with me, Michael Rustin, physicist extraordinaire. Please, Michael, would you like to introduce yourself? Well, I want to thank you, Tracy. That's uh, quite an introduction. I like to think of myself as just a physicist. However, I have been doing medical physics for almost 30 years now. I've worked in a variety of different environments. I got board certified in 1996. I also have done a lot of ACR surveys as well as been an ACR reviewer. So uh, I think the real strength of my experience has been so many different places and seeing so many different things. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to join us. It's my pleasure. Would you mind sharing with us how you found and how you made your way into radiation oncology? Absolutely. In fact, it's kind of very interesting. I was a senior at Bates College in the physics department, and they got a call one day from a medical physicist over at the hospital in radiation therapy looking for a senior physicist who might be interested in doing some work, study work. I had no idea what medical physics was. And I can honestly tell you, when I was six years old, I didn't say I want to grow up and be a medical physicist. And so interestingly enough, I went over and I met this gentleman and I worked for him my, uh, the second half of my senior year. At the end, when I graduated, he went ahead and offered me a position to work over the summer. So I was actually working in a radiation therapy clinic, doing all the, the functions of a physicist. Of course, back in 1989, it was a little bit easier than what it is today, but it was a lot of fun. And the one thing I remember probably more than anything else was he used to calibrate survey meters as a side business. And he had a Shepard radiator and he basically would pull up the Shepard radiator. The source would come out, the meter would be on a table three feet away. And he said, don't step in front of here if you want kids. And that was, I want to say, my real introduction to radiation therapy, uh, or actually radiation safety. Interestingly enough, he had put me in touch with the University of Florida. Uh, he had come from that program. And I ended up actually taking a job with Raytheon at the end of the summer, which was very interesting because instead of irradiating people, I was involved in radiating little black microchips and seeing how they would survive in the event we had a nuclear war and the guy in the cockpit or the tank or whatever was still alive to push the button, our stuff would work. And after about a year at Raytheon, I was like, I don't know. I really never envisioned myself uh, literally talking to little black microchips at three o'clock in the morning for experimenting and really liked working with people. And I thought more about medical physics. I thought it was a really nice combination between medicine and science. And so I applied to the University of Florida and I got in and the rest of it's been history ever since. Again, it's such a, when you look at the field, there is a very small number of us. So I really don't know how well it's publicized in terms of a real career path for physics. Yeah. You know, most people think about astrophysics or nuclear physics or some type of research and science rather than applying to medicine. So, like I said, unless some of us fall into it or happen to meet somebody and say, hey, have you ever heard of medical physics? We really don't do a lot of recruitment on the outside world. You know, within the industry, we can point you in the right direction to a lot of 
programs, a lot of material, different organizations. But if you've never heard of it, it's rare that you probably will, unless you have a relative, again, who's treated, who has cancer, who's treated with radiation. And then you become more intimately involved with the staff, with the treatment uh, through that particular relative or friend, unfortunately. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that speaks, you know, volumes to how little information there is out there for the young people who are out there searching for careers and looking for their future, their path. And, you know, I know I had never heard of radiation oncology before I made it to college, right? And in those days, it was, well, do you want to be a doctor? Do you want to be a lawyer? I mean, those are the things right. that they ask you, but they don't, uh, you know, I took a survey course and they brought in a couple of therapists and I was like, wow, that, you know, what a, what a cool career. Let's, I mean, let's see more, right? So I went and did some shadowing and fell in love with it. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that most people don't understand, especially when you get into therapy physics, and there are different branches of medical physics, but with therapy physics, uh, it's kind of interesting because we play with the most expensive toys in the hospital. The average accelerator now runs about $4 million. Mm-hmm. QA equipment, as you know, can run anywhere between one hundred dollars to $250,000, $300,000 in terms of an inventory that you need. And it really is kind of cool. The the problem that sometimes I forget about is I get a little bit complacent with all the regulations and everything else and all the work that goes into it until I start talking to somebody about what I do. Then I get all excited again because kind of that reminder of I'm really helping people and I'm doing it with a strength that I have in terms of I love medicine, I love science, and I was able to combine the two here in this particular field. And you think, wow, I mean, my, you know, you and your team are making a huge difference in a lot of people's lives. And that is cool. Well, I think the other thing, and I know we're going to get to, I think it's the, the next question is like, what's your favorite thing to do every day? Uh-huh. Yeah. Is my interaction with patients. Yeah. And one of the reasons why is, yes, we only see about 10% of the population. And sometimes we forget that. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many times I've gone home with a headache and I felt it was a brain tumor or, you know, my shoulder hurts. Oh no, I've got a bone sarcoma, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can <laughs> relate that, totally. It's kind of fun. Uh, not really, but the reality is from a social perspective, when people are diagnosed with cancer, they almost become, I don't want to say lepers in our culture, because the general population, the media, as soon as you have cancer, it's deemed as a death sentence. And it's so far from that. In fact, I'm a cancer survivor. I had rectal polyps. And I remember talking to my cousin one day when I was diagnosed. And his, his first comment to me was, I'm really sorry to hear you got the big C. What do you mean wow. the D? He couldn't even say the word cancer. What people don't understand about cancer is that cancer is nothing more of an overgrowth or an outgrowth of cells, essentially. And unfortunately, it'll grow in an organ that we need and potentially kill the organ, or it'll grow near an organ that we need and compress or destroy the area around that organ and causes it to not function. And what we don't understand right now is why that secondary growth starts, you know, when you're done. I mean, you grow to be a, a human being. Why do you grow more internally? Or, and I think some of that has to do with stress and, 
and how our body responds. And we are probably the most misunderstood engineering machine ever created. We are universes within ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us don't take the time to stop and think about that. But, you know, what's the favorite part of my day is working with a patient who comes in scared, who doesn't know what to expect, who's afraid, and honestly have having both the technical and the communication skills to sit down with that person and try and explain to them in layman's terms, this is what it is. This is what your treatment's going to be. You know, share with them some of my experiences over the years and just to reassure them that they're going to be okay. Or, you know, again, reassure them and give them hope in their treatment. I would be honest, you know, it was very interesting. My father was a physician. And he used, he was an OBGYN, did surgery. And he said to me, you know, over the 40 years I practiced medicine, 15% of the patients I could cure with my medical skills. 15%, I couldn't do anything. And the other 70% actually healed themselves. I just knew enough of where to maybe intercede a little bit or where to back off. And I think with cancer treatment, There's still a lot of things we don't know or understand. However, I think because the cancer comes from within the body, it should be within the body's ability to treat the cancer, break down in the immune system. We just don't know where. And we try and help the immune system. And honestly, reassuring a patient in their treatment, I think is just as effective at times as giving them the treatment. So again, you know, you go in, you hear all the negative things about radiation, you hear all the bad things that are going to happen. My favorite is I'm going to glow. No, I'm going to glow. Your grandkids will be disappointed. You know, if you want, what you can do is take a flashlight late at night and put it up against the bottom of your chin and go in and scare them. But, you know, and I think it's working with people and working with a science that I understand and can then, you know, explain And there's nothing, uh, I will tell you, the most rewarding experience for me was explaining something to a prostate patient one day and then walking out the next day because a lot of the patients come in same time every day. So they're meeting friends out in the waiting area and how to go. And I heard one guy actually explaining the treatment to one of his buddies that he had met in the waiting room with all the stuff I had told him the day before. And it was like, yes. So again, that's the favorite part of my day. Man, what a win. That is awesome, man, to walk past the, you know, the waiting room, kind of the, you know, go get your coffee and you come back yeah. and you hear somebody else using, impacting another life based on, you know, the impact that you had on them. That is special. That's special. Especially when that person maybe two days before was traumatized about the whole idea of they were getting the radiation and they didn't understand any of it. You know, I think one of the things we're guilty of in medicine anymore is we don't take the time to talk to our patients. We don't take the time to explain things. Unfortunately, with the way medicine has become a business, um, the emphasis is on getting patients through rather than addressing patients. And I think at least in radiation oncology, we have the advantage. This isn't a one-time procedure typically. We see the patient anywhere from two to four weeks. They be almost become like extended family. And I will tell you, I put on probably 20 pounds since I've come into this industry. 
just from patients saying thank you with all kinds of goodies and stuff. And it's such a blessing. It's so nice. You know, the folks appreciate so much what the teams do, but you know, your efforts there and taking it even a step further and explaining, you know, as a physicist going in and, and having a, a layman's term conversation with somebody who is shaking and scared, you know, they're like you said, mm-hmm. traumatized. I mean, that man, that speaks volumes of your of your efforts and your team there. Well, it's scary. Even when you have to have your own medical procedure, it's kind of scary if you don't know what's going on. I grew up in the Northeast. There used to be a gentleman who owned a clothing store like Marshall's or TJ Maxx. His name was Cy Sims. And his, his slogan on TV was an educated consumer is our best customer. An educated patient for the most part, for the ones that want to know. And I will say there are those some that don't want to know or don't care or whatever. And that's okay too. But in general, most people just don't know enough about it. And unfortunately, I don't know that we actually spend enough time educating our staff also to explain to the patients, not just the physicists, but sometimes the therapists, although therapists are usually pretty good, but the nurses oftentimes who are doing the consults with the physician, sometimes a physician is very vague because they don't have time to spend with the patient. And so You know, if you can imagine, and I I don't know how many of your listeners have encountered this, but like I said, I'm a cancer survivor. The first time I found out I had atypical cells, I just heard cancer. I I wasn't ready to hear, oh, you're going to have to do this. You might have to do that. These are your options, et cetera. I just needed some time to absorb the shock of finding out I have possibly had cancer. And then as I went through, and you know, it's kind of sad because we do something called the Simmon tree. And we used to do it a lot more frequently. They've changed a little bit. But the idea was you come in, you talk to your physician, he'd say, you're going to have radiation. This is what you're going to do. This is the process. And you're already on the CT getting simulated. And then the next thing you know, you're on the table getting treated and you're like, huh, what? what's going on? Where did this come from? And again, I guess because I have been there. I would prefer to have people have questions to be comfortable. And again, not everyone, but the people that do. And you find out that it's probably about 75% of your patients want to have some kind of understanding of what's going on. And you know what? As soon as they do, it's amazing how amenable they become to what needs to be done, how to do things, et cetera. And I think that also contributes to part of the success of their treatment. Because not only is their body participating, but now their mind's behind it as well. I think that is beautifully put and spot on. From my, my clinical experiences, if there's a level of understanding of why, you, you know the what, you have an idea of the what, right? As a patient, like I, I know. And we're looking at the how, but if I can understand the why, I mean, doesn't that just it totally evolves the treatment process. Mm -hmm. And nobody should be afraid of it. You know, that's the other thing. Mm -hmm. I would say the fear can cause as much anxiety and breakdown in the immune system. It weakens the immune system. It weakens things to the point where um, it's probably as counterproductive to the treatment as not having a treatment at all. Wow, that's that's an interesting line of thought there. That's really... Weird kind of guy. No, not at all. I mean, it, it's thought provoking though. Think, you know, we put in these efforts. If we follow this train of thought, it may be an effort in futility that those, taking those moments 
to educate and for their comfort and help to understand could radically change results. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That's interesting. I wonder if there's any any like papers out there. You're publishing, right? <laughs> I wish. I might, <laughs> I might write a, me- a memoir someday, but yeah, no. It's just observation. You know, I remember during one of my positions, we used to have a Christmas party for patients. Unfortunately, we don't do that stuff anymore. And we talk about the miracle cures because it was around Christmas. And I remember hearing about patients that literally had stage four terminal cancer, went in the woods for four to six months away from everything and came back out in full remission. What does that tell you? Wow. Real treatment. I think, again, the body can heal itself. You know, we think we always have to do something right away. My mother was an example. She had uh, DCIS, which is a slow-growing breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And to be honest with you, she wasn't sure she wanted to have radiation. And her son works in the industry. And my father, being an OBGYN, he stayed on top of it. It was not a fast-growing cancer. and She had a lot of time. Interestingly enough, she went to one of the biggest named facilities in the country. She was very proud of her body and very shy in certain ways. And the doctor knocked on the door and walked in with nine residents to discuss the case with my mother without warning her. She put her clothes on, got up and walked out. She basically went ahead and she had the lumpectomy, no chemo, no radiation. She died 25 years later and lose that personal attention where several years later, I worked at a little facility in the backwoods of Massachusetts. We were treating 40 patients a day on a 6MV machine with with electrons. The doctor used to sing opera to every one of his patients, and he uh, was Korean. We did the feng shui thing where patients could bring in rocks, including a gentleman who I remember brought in a 500-pound boulder that every time he came back for follow-up, we had to take out of the closet and put back in the same spot where he had opted to display his boulder. Exactly. And I would say very honestly, some of the, the highest success I've ever seen in this industry was with that physician in particular, just because it was. And I remember he invited me in at one point, I had to be a witness for a consult because our office manager wasn't available. And he sat in a room with a very old lady and her daughter. And he looks at the old lady and starts screaming at her, I am a bastard. I'm a bastard. You look at me, you think I'm a bastard, but not to you, to your cancer. And you could see, oh, wow. Oh my God. To, wow. Thank you. You know, and it was just amazing, the energy and the experience. And I guess I've been very lucky in that respect to be able to work with several of those people and, and those things. And again, a lot of what we do do is technical, but I think some of it still is emotional and a little bit spiritual as well. You can put yourself in her shoes and hear that. And oh my goodness, what an impact. And like I said, you have one doctor that can't give hope to a patient. And here's another one that's going to be the savior. So. We're all very different. We all have something to bring to the table. And my goal, even for some physicians I haven't always agreed with or gotten along with, was never to pull their pants down in front of a patient. Sure. 
If the patient believed in the physician, that was the, in my opinion, with all the technical knowledge and everything I have with the advances we've made in cancer and everything else, that was as good to me as putting the patient through treatment. That's fantastic. Way to pitch in there. You know, where where needed and wanted. That's amazing. Such a cool Okay, thing. back to the science stuff. So, you know, talking about what in what's in the past, what's new? What's going on for your for your clinic now? Anything new down well, there? Well, I think not only my clinic, but the industry is mm-hmm. once again in a very unique position in terms of some of the new topics that are coming out now. To be honest with you, right around the year 2000, I was getting ready to leave the industry because I didn't believe the whole 180, 200 centigrade per day for four to six weeks worth of treatment was really helping patients, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And if we look at a lot of that data, it was based on organs at risk and complications rather than tumor dose. And we had some real pioneers in this field physicians that started to introduce, besides SRS, but they started to introduce hypofractionation. So that was a big step. And honestly, I've done a lot of SBRT and it's amazing doing small lung tumors and watching them disappear in three months, given radiation treatments. Unfortunately, a lot of them are metastatic. So one goes away and five come back and you can only do so much. But the whole idea of really giving tumorcidal doses and then, of course, uh, Dr. Mackey, who I think it's credited with tomotherapy and VMAT, was a huge, huge change in technology and mindset. IMRT in general, where instead of forward planning, we now put in constraints and the computer started to plan for us. That was a big paradigm shift for us. Uh, in fact, that's still a challenge today when we're doing some planning is learning how to enter the constraints correctly to get what it is we're hoping to do. Um, We've had some advances in imaging. In fact, some of my graduate work now, uh, way back when I did real-time megavoltage imaging for a company called Philips, which is now Electa, was some of my graduate work was to evaluate system. But beyond megavoltage imaging to do KV, KV, and cone beam imaging. So we're actually treating before we add the patient every day daily before we go ahead and deliver the radiation so we can actually see where it's going. I think looking toward the future, there are at least three exciting things that I'm looking forward to. One will not happen here, I do not believe, because we don't have a proton facility, but a flash, I don't know if you've heard, is actually delivering, I've heard 72,000 gray, 72,000 centigrade per minute which basically is delivering a full treatment in less than five seconds. And the belief is radiobiologically, you're killing tumor cells without affecting healthy cells. So we don't necessarily have some of, and again, I'm boiling some of this down very simplistically, but flash for protons, there's also several groups working on flash for photons. I think MR LINAC is a big thing because now instead of just looking at CTs that have limited resolution for soft tissue, you can, and and mostly we're looking at bony structures, you can now see all the soft tissue. So things like abdomen, pancreas, liver, things that we really didn't have great resolution for. Unfortunately, I think MR-LINAC 
is still a little bit expensive relative to standard photon treatment. And then the other thing is adaptive therapy. And the idea of being able to image your patient before you treat it, deform organs on the fly, and then be able to treat actually what you're seeing at that moment rather than depending on a simulation that you did two weeks ago and trying to align the anatomy back to where it was when you did the simulation. And of course, there are some huge advances and and a lot of this is going to happen because of artificial intelligence. Very interestingly enough, several years ago, I worked with a CEO and his comment was very nicely, in medicine, we're going to be expected to do more with less and do it better. For those of us that are out there old enough to know who George Carlin was, who unfortunately a very famous comedian that passed away, is that not an oxymoron? Trying to do more with less and do it better. Well, normally it would be. However, the key is now leveraging technology. And that's, I think, the challenge we all face, and especially in radiation oncology, is because we do have so much technology. It is expensive, unfortunately. And the question is now, where does medicine go in terms, and I'm not going to get into ethics and discussion, but you hear about return on investment. Why a hospital has to make money. and you know We can't just buy equipment that we can't afford. And all of those things are true. But realistically, to do more with less and do it better is going to require technology. Technology requires education and money. And so it's going to be interesting to see how our healthcare system and government addresses that over the next five to 10 years. I think we're going to see a fair amount of automation in terms of AI doing some of the more mundane things like contouring, you know, and making things a lot more efficient and a little more accurate to some extent. It's very interesting how if you ask two physicians to contour the same CT, you're going to get some variation. I think you're going to see more immediate feedback in terms of the delivery of the treatments. We're starting to look at doing dose reconstruction using cone beam CTs after patients been treated and and trying to gather that information. I think you're going to see things become more accurate. I think the biggest thing that we'll see in terms of our industry, which is going to be a bit of a struggle, is going to hypofractionation. In other words, we're going to be treating, instead of doing four to six week treatments now, we're probably going to do treatments within two weeks or less. So that means you're going to be, in theory, opening up more treatment slots and not treating. And one of our paradigm shifts, and you see it now, we used to do how many treatments per year did you do rather than how many patients did you do? And You know, where you take a prostate patient who was, let's say, 30 plus treatments, and now you do them in five, you've now reduced the number of treatments by six times. And how financially does that then impact what we're doing? So I think that's really the biggest question coming is how are we going to address now as far as technology and what we'd like to do? I'd like to say at some point, you'll have drive-through radiation therapy. You can go into a Starbucks. You can order your coffee while your latte is being done. You can have your prostate irradiated and off you go with your coffee. Come back again tomorrow. 
Isn't that something? But I think what we're going to see is a lot more knowledge into immunotherapy and immunotherapy combined with radiation oncology and other disciplines. I think you're going to see more communication evolve within the different disciplines within medicine as opposed to, I only study this, I only study that, I only study this. And there's no cross communication or pollination. And I think a lot of these things, especially with something as complex as cancer. That said, what would be your advice to a person getting into the field? Or you know, if you could go back and give yourself a mm-hmm. note as you were in college and starting your career and kind of delving into things, what would that message be? Don't be afraid to jump in with both feet. Be flexible. And as I was trained, you do what it needs to what's required to help treat a patient. And I, I joke around, but when I was in graduate school, lifting help to the LINAC, cutting blocks, as a physicist, even half I know for most of most of the younger people won't know what I'm talking about with regard to cutting blocks. Oh, I, I remember cutting blocks. Yeah, no, I, I, I said younger people. I didn't say you and I. Oh, oh sick burn. <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, well, you know, the funny part is I'm becoming one of the old lovable, lovable dinosaurs mm-hmm. to try and look up to. That's the really funny part. I had looked for a mentor for the longest time, and now I turn around and all of a sudden I am the mentor. It's a really interesting transition. But I think like anything else, I don't stand on titles. I don't stand on degrees. Good ideas can come from anywhere. And the important thing is not to think that you know so much that you can't get an idea from a source you never would have expected, even if they don't appear as, quote, educated as you are or as intellectual as you are. I mean, some of us just poo-poo things. And I will tell you, we try things. And then the other important thing is to try and remain calm especially in uh, high pressure situations, remembering you can always give radiation, but you can't take it away. So the idea being, unless you're relatively sure of what you're doing, and I'm not saying you're going to be 100% sure. I like to use what I call the ivory factor, the 99 and 44 one hundredths part, you know, for ivory soap pure. Right. You know, I would like to say 90% of the time, I'm really comfortable about what's going on. There's always that 10%. And then the other thing is you always fall back. If you're trying something new, always have a backup plan. What did I do before that? You know, how did we treat this patient before we try, we want to try this new technique? It's amazing to me how many people will try a new technique only to not have it work out and freak out when they forgot that they used to be doing something similar for 10 years prior and take that step back. No, my time machine needs to be able to lug around 200 pounds of, of volumes of novels. But yeah. you know, I, I think that's a, it's a lovely message. You know, um, it's easy, you know, from my perspective in this field, it's easy to start taking it seriously and it's easy to kind of get bogged down by those things. But to remind yourself to kind of live and let live is also... Well, and I think the one thing that I probably didn't touch on and... Yeah. Time to time does come back. And I mentioned about smelling the roses. I think sometimes we really need to appreciate what we have 
relative to somebody who may not have that any longer. And if nothing else, cancer therapy is a day-to-day reminder of maybe to live in the moment because you don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. And I think I'm having a bad day and then I go see a stage four, you know, or a brain mess and somebody who's got a month to live. Uh, is really anything in my life that difficult or bad or, you know, horrible compared to what's going to happen to this person? And so I think keeping perspective on things is very important too. And I think, like you say, sometimes we do forget that it is very serious. And again, nothing wrong with it. But I think it's important to also remember what's important because of what we may not have or what somebody else is losing. So something else to kind of keep in perspective. Wise words, very wise words. And, I, and, and things to, to definitely remember. I'll, I'll be keeping those, uh, those little notes in my, in my pocket for future use for sure. Well, either there or in 10 years when I write my memoirs. <laughs> Perfect. I will just, you know, when you are number one on the Amazon selling list, yeah, right. I will just buy Life by Mike, right? Yeah. Well, you know, the funny part about all of this, and I'll leave you with this thought, it was a volunteer at a place I worked at, and he had lost his son and his wife. And he was a soul, he was still a survivor helping out. Like he said, the sad part is you get it all figured out, or you take it a lifetime to get it all figured out, and then it's time to go. And, you know, I never appreciated youth being wasted on the young. My dad used to tell me I was too serious when I was a kid and to lighten up. And I never understood that. And golly gee whiz, if it isn't true, how old age gives you a very different perspective. So why I couldn't have the same perspective when I was 30, I don't know. You know, my grandparents used to say that to me all the time too. Youth is wasted on the young. And I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah. It's becoming clearer and clearer every day, right? It does, doesn't it? Oh, man. Every morning I wake up, realize I know less than I knew yesterday. And it's a great feeling. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Well, all righty. Thank you, Mr. Mike, there for coming and spending time, taking time out of your day to share your life with us. We certainly appreciate it. Such an honor. Always a pleasure chatting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. The honor and privilege were mine. And anybody would like to talk, needs help, etc. I am in the AAPM directory. Feel free to reach out. I have no issues because like I would say before, an educated consumer is our best customer and I love to teach people. I love to help. I love to contribute. And that's what really keeps me going about this industry. So absolutely, opportunity to chat with you. Oh, yeah. And I can vouch for you there because I have called you myself with questions and you have always helped me, taught me so much. So, you know, at such a grateful person you have here uh, interviewing you right now. Thank you for everything. No, well, you know, the way I look at it, Tracy, and I think, you know, there's that saying about paying it forward. Mm-hmm. If I teach you and the goal is if I impart my knowledge to you, I'm hoping you'll get at least as good as I am. The real goal is to get you to go better than I am because that way the world will go forward. If I keep information from you, if I don't tell you things, if I hold back and I keep you behind me, then the world doesn't progress. It just kind of either stays where it is or goes backwards. So I know there are times 
that people feel that they'll be replaced if they give away too much information or they don't share whatever. And again, we could have another two-hour podcast on Mike's philosophies of life. So we'll just kind of drop that here. But again, I hope I've inspired some folks. It's a very exciting field for medicine and science as an alternative to going into straight medicine or straight science. And um, if anybody has any questions, feel free to reach out to me. Oh, that is fabulous. And I cannot wait to record part two. Part two with Mike. That's going to be such a fun episode. Yeah, see? Alrighty, awesome. Well, we'll go ahead and close here, folks. If you are listening, we've had the amazing pleasure of having with us Michael Redstein from Missouri, a physicist, amazing teacher and guide. Thank you again so much, Mike. We certainly appreciate your time. Listeners, if you haven't already, please do click that subscribe button. Continue traveling down this road with us. And as we explore all things radiation therapy, radiation oncology, and pick the best minds in our space to have discussions like what we did today. So please do subscribe and continue listening, folks. Thank you so very much.